Hello, and welcome to Pianotech Radio Hour, the weekly bridge to the future of the Pianotech community. I'm David Anderson. And I'm Ethan Janney. And we're here to ask great questions, and then we'll shut up and listen to some of the authorities, experts, and most outstanding personalities in our little world of pianos. So, put on your best set of headphones, and let's get started. This is uh, being brought to you by Pianotech Missions Masterclasses, that online educational resource that brings you piano technicians from all over the world to your home so you can learn. And you can find out more at pianotechniciansmasterclass.com. And on today's episode, we have Eric Johnson, uh, who is uh, kind of the high-end piano guy. He's worked in the industry for several years for several manufacturers. And he's out there in New York and South Carolina. And we're going to hear about, you know, how his lifestyle is nowadays as a piano technician, as well as the incredible history that he's been through in the industry. So without further ado, here's Eric Johnson. Welcome. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. David, you got anything you want to launch off with? or uh, Just that I've known Eric on a personal level for what, 15 years? probably. That's great. We've taught together a couple of times. We loved it. He's one of the most able piano technicians I've ever come across. Uh, He's, he's kind of like, like a prototype X-Men kind of awesome piano technician. He looks good. He's, he knows how to conduct a relationship and he's got massive uh, artisanal talents to make a piano sing. So welcome. I've wanted you. you on on Piano Tech Radio Hour since the beginning. So thank you. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that. Let me just say, you know, let me tell you some of the things I like about David. That that hair, man. That, that hair. It's like yeah. It's almost, my, my brother says I look like a retired Marine Colonel with this buzz. <laughs> but, uh, listen, but, but seriously, I mean, this is, is sort of connected. Uh, David and I met uh, at the Rochester uh, PTG convention. 15 years and, ago. Yeah, and um, you know, he's the first person that I had met in the industry who sort of spoke in spiritual terms about pianos and i don't mean you know ghosts and and uh things but this idea that there was something beyond just the mechanics of the keys going up and down and the uh, hammer hitting the string and that you could there was something beyond the specs um and it was something that i had always felt but i had never really met anybody who spoke in those kind of terms or who admitted to thinking in those kind of terms. David was, you know, David, he's right out there. You know exactly what he's thinking at any particular moment. And, and it was very refreshing to meet somebody else who thought that way, that, that had, there was, there was, I don't know another word than spiritual. I mean, that captures part of it, but it's, you know, that was a little too new, but another dimension to what a, what a piano is so that was really fun we've had we've had fun ever since do you want me to just start talking or yeah just, uh... yeah just start talking all right well we already did listen. start talking so keep talking <laughs> so i'm you know i'm open i'm open um do you know joe malecki i do know 
uh, Joe Malecki. Um, it's going to be a little tricky for me to watch these. Please compare and we'll keep, contrast. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on the other chat. Uh, Ethan, uh, Ethan will keep an eye on those. Okay. These are great questions, particularly the one, you know, the Schimmel and other German pianos and, and, and Steinways. So, um, but to, to give you an idea where what my perspective is, where I'm coming from, let me share with you a little bit of my background. Um, but in particular, in particular, window in history in the piano industry. That is, Dave and I were joking. You know, it seems to me like it was yesterday, but it turns out it was 40 years ago. So it's ancient history. Right. Um, uh, a lot of people. But but that will, I think, give you my perspective, and then we can talk about you know some of these tone differences between American and European pianos because that is something I'm, I'm really uh, focused on. So, you know, secondly, I have no explanation for my career. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, I was the right person at the right time willing to work for mostly nothing for a long time. So that's why, but you know, when you hear these things, it's like, I, I don't have any, the only rational explanation I can have for the way my career has unfolded is reincarnation. I mean, that's the only rational kind of thing. There's something in my karma that led me to this particular uh, industry, and in particular at this point in the industry. And as I tell people, I tried to get out of this business twice, and it has pulled me back in. This is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful profession. It has its quirks. It has its difficulties. It's not, you know, uh, wine and roses, but it's a fabulous profession because it allows you to deal at so many different levels. You can pick and choose. I like the high-end concert level and I don't like sawdust. So I really, I'm not a rebuilder and I don't even pretend to uh, uh, be a rebuilder. And people can find their niche in lots of different places. And, and it's always a good place for people that like cool, expensive tools. So, you know, no matter what your other interests are. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply connected to this industry and, and, I think part of that will unfold. So anyway, can you, I, can you, go can, ahead. You, can you just give us 30 seconds? You, you were a piano technician first, and from what I understand, a good one, and then went on this whole executive, piano industry executive detour in a way, right? Yeah. Describe well, that very quickly, 30, 45. Well, I'm, I'm gonna take it, <laughs> if you don't mind, I'll take it a little slower than that. Um, because because there were two chunks to my career. Uh, the first chunk was as a toolcase carrying concert technician. And I worked for, uh, uh, I was right out of college. I, I had had two years of tuning experience under my belt. And right out of college, right out of the Berkeley College, I got hired by Kimball, who was the owner of Bursendorfer at that point. And they were starting the Bursendorfer concert program in this country. This is 1978. Uh, uh, Garrick Olson was their big uh, uh, marquee name here, and they had a number of names in Europe, Adolf Schiff and, and uh, Paul Bedroskota, and a number of people in Europe, and they were beginning to push here. So it took me two years sort of with Kimball before I really hit the road, uh, before I trained in Vienna and, and really got up to speed on concert pianos. And then I spent the next five or six years traveling the country, basically, uh, supporting mainly Bursendorfer artists. And, that, and this was Garrick Olson, uh, Andras Schiff, uh, uh, Paul Badura-Skoda, um, Oscar Peterson, Chick Corea played Bursendorfer at that point. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was a small but 
there were serious, <laughs> there were some serious pianists in that group. And I was traveling all the time. I tuned for Oscar Peterson more, probably two dozen times. Uh, Chick, uh, at least a dozen, dozen times, you know, uh, I, I, by the time I was, by the time I was 28, I had tuned in every major concert hall in this country, not Chicago, um, but Boston, certainly all the New York halls, uh, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Cincinnati, uh, uh, you know, I had been in and prepared uh, concerts for uh, all this. And, and it's, you know, here's the thing, it's not that I was re a really remarkably skilled technician. It was like, okay, I was the guy. I was hired, I was in that spot, I had the, the right background um, and I had been to Vienna and I had enough tuning under my belt that under some pressure and some intense work, I kind of got up to the right level. But let me tell you folks, there was a lot of learning on the job. Um, and, uh, you know, people talk about concert work and, oh, it's so refined and the concert tuning is different than anything else. No, the a concert, the challenge of concert work is working under time pressure uh, because yeah. you never have enough time. And, and unless it's a piano you see regularly, which was not my situation. I was traveling around seeing different pianos all the time. They were all the same model. They were all Imperial 290 Bersendorfers, which helped a lot but they were uh, all in much different states of, of condition. Some not bad, some truly horrible. Um, and, and, and work done by well-intentioned American um, technicians. So that was the first sort of window. And that ended with me living in New York City and the, the concert world sort of beginning to heat up uh, in New York City. And, and at this point, there, there were a lot of manufacturers. Baldwin had a very uh, uh, active concert program. Beckstein had concert pianos. You know, it was a very kind of uh, uh, vibrant place. But I had decided that I'm tired of carrying a toolcase. This has been a great career and they're gonna want me to do it as long as I wanna do it. And I guess I'd like to move on with my life. So I quit and I went to business school. I went to Cornell for two years and got an MBA. And I'm going to take a break now to see if you guys are still with me or if we're heading you know, off the wrong path. We've plummeted from 82 all the way down to five. We might as well just call it. <laughs> well, uh, in that case, I'm opening my beer. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, we've been, we, our audience has been growing rapidly. Um, so so uh, that, that's one chunk. And... I went to business school thinking, thank God, I'm never going to have to tune a piano again. Huh. Huh. What do they say? When man plans, God laughs. There you go. That's exactly what they say. Um, uh, but I really, I wanted to get out of the industry. I want to make some money. I, there wasn't, cons there wasn't um, uh, venture capital then, and there wasn't uh, Silicon Valley. This is my second year in business school is when Windows first came out. So everything I was doing up to that point was, you know, DOS from the C prompt, if those of you were really a question. Um, but here's the reality, here's the realization I had, is I sat in these second year MBA interviews with banks and insurance companies and some consulting firms, McKinsey and this kind of stuff. And I couldn't pretend that what they were talking about sounded interesting. I just, I couldn't fake it because if you want one of those jobs, you gotta, you gotta be on your, it's a, it's a big deal going through the process of getting hired by these people. And I realized I couldn't, I couldn't fake it. I had had an interesting job. I, none of this. Yeah. Okay. The money will be better, but 
I'll want to jump off a, a pier in the first year. It, it, it was it was a realization, but it was a sobering one too uh, because it's like okay, now what? Back in the piano industry, and that's when I went to work for Bill McCormick in Washington for a year. The, the, the Jordan Kitts Music, which was at the time the second largest Steinway dealer in the country, and uh, 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 I got to know Dennis Houlihan, who went on to be president of Roland, and, and some really some really good people. It, it was not a pleasant experience for me, but it was kind of a year uh, uh, retail interim. And then I got a job with Yamaha. And that job with Yamaha was not, again, on the piano side. The Yamaha at that point, and I don't know how many people here are on the PTG, but the PTG has a long-term plan. And I'm not a big fan of long-term plans. And this is one of the reasons. This was 19... 88 and Yamaha just had its 100th anniversary and Yamaha had commissioned McKinsey to do a next 100 year plan for the Yamaha Globe. And so one of the reports, uh, parts of this report back from McKinsey is that Yamaha should have these little listening posts all over the world where they can meet with artists and show people what the latest product is and get feedback on, on product ideas and this kind of stuff. And, and Yamaha opened one in New York City That's and right. Uh, on, uh, right across from Steinway Hall, well, Kitty Corner, uh, down a block from Steinway Hall on 57th Street in Metropolitan Tower. Uh, right, you know, big, expensive, retail well big signage uh retail space called well, the it, difference it, was, Yamaha art center right Something well like it, it was called the yamaha communication center there you go and it was not part of yamaha corporation of america it was part of ycj where yamaha's corporation of japan and we didn't sell anything we had a showroom on the bottom floor of products and we had second floor we had a studio for recording equipment. We had a studio for the HX1, the big organ that was uh, the, the, the powerhouse in the organ industry the, those days, and a piano uh, research area where we used to get the prototype instruments over and, and had some p uh, prominent artists come through and evaluate them. Now, I wasn't, that wasn't my job. That was uh, 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 run by a guy named, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful human being named William Santaella. I don't know if many of you have ever heard or knew William, but William was one of the great characters in this industry. And uh, he was able to bring a stream of people through. And there was no pressure because it wasn't advertising. It wasn't, it was just tell us what you think of this piano. And so we saw, I saw the development of up to the CF3 uh, and then the CF3S uh, came through there. Um, Without going into details, then things changed. You know, long-term plans rarely work, and there was a lot of cultural issues, corporate cultural issues, that caused the death of Yamaha Communication Center. And uh, I was asked to move then into the new position of artist services director for Yamaha. So now I went from YCJ to YCA, Yamaha Corporation of America, located in Buena Park, which is responsible for all the Yamahas you see. Leroy Edwards and that whole world is, is YCA. And now I was officially part of YCA, running the artist services program out of New York City, out of that same location in New York City. So this was during the, the, the big um, uh, 
earthquake that had happened then was Andre Watts had moved from Steinway to Yamaha. And that was just as Garrick Olson, there was a famous Garrick Olson event that I can tell you about that led to Bersendorfer being put on the map. Um, and then the one that put Yamaha on the map was Andre Watts moving from Steinway to um, uh, Yamaha. And that's, I took over right after that. And I ran well, that. What was that, Eric? What year was that? Uh, this would have been 87, 80, um, 87, 80, 80, uh, 1989. Got it. Um, and, and Chick had moved to Yamaha at this point. Um, uh, Maria Joao Pires, if you know that name, a wonderful, heartbreakingly beautiful uh, pianist. Um, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, pianist. She... Uh, uh, played Yamaha, uh, Andras Schiff, uh, uh, he didn't, he occasionally played Yamaha, but uh, uh, by this time he had become Sir Andras Schiff. Um, and I'm sure I'm blanking on some of them, but I, uh, I wasn't carrying a toolcase at this point, and I was doing, we had Japanese technicians, uh, trained guys, very, very serious, wonderful guys, who would travel around, especially with Andre, I mean, he always had, we try we couldn't always send the same piano, but we always sent the same technician. And that was a, a, a very good relationship. Um, and uh, my big claim to fame was that I brought Elton John from Steinway to Yamaha. Um, but I wasn't carrying the toolcase. I was doing PR. I was not PR, but artist relations. And I was traveling all the time again, visiting dealers and going to concerts and, and uh, piano competitions and, and that kind of stuff. I'm curious, like, I don't know if this, if this is an answerable question. What are the politics of these artists kind of becoming uh, an artist for a different brand? Um, oh, my God. <laughs> well, see, this is the thing. This period in the U.S., in the piano industry from about 1980 to when I left, uh, when I left Yamaha in 2000, my second attempt to get away from the industry. During that 20 years, it was a really vibrant time in the in the industry and the politics listen i have great admiration for steinway uh their role in the world and and their role in uh, piano development and and things but i have had firsthand experience they are sharp elbowed competitors and they have weight that they're not afraid to carry around and they i've seen it with my own two eyes um, they aren't afraid to really push around big name artists. Uh, I had one particular case where a, a really a major artist was playing with a major American symphony under a major German, but their resident conductor. Um, and we provided the piano, it was concertos, and we provided the piano for the first of three performances. And uh, she came to me after the, at the end, that evening, before, you know, that evening and said, look, um, they told me if I play Yamaha again, I'll never play here again. And I have to, you know, I have a career. <laughs> and to which I replied, no, it's in your contract. You have to play. I don't care what happens. I'm joking about that, by the way. But, <laughs> but uh, this is firsthand experience. So it's a, it's a tough tough place and and to to break through um, to get somebody to make a high high level to make a change uh, was but realize something else too this was also during a different period in Steinway's history and if you know if you 
I don't know how many of you like seeing piano, Steinway pianos from the 80s, but that was not the high point of their uh, no. uh, production quality. And, and they really had a monopoly. And my experience working at Jordan Kitts for a year told me I saw brand new Steinways as if they uh, arriving at a dealer, you know, right out of the box. And man, they were rough. They were really rough. I did right. the same thing. I was working in a warehouse for Sherman Clay, who was, by by the way, the biggest Steinway dealer in the United States or in the world at that time. Yeah, yeah, Sherman Clay. And I was preparing, me and a team of three were preparing, I don't know, a dozen Steinways a week, probably, over a three-day period, you know, between nine and 12. And they were, talk about rough, yeah. really rough. A lot well, of- The, the, the concert pianos were the same. And so, this is also the period of pro piano. And if any of you know that name, uh, you know, during this period, uh, it, it, the, the Steinway concert pianos got panned a lot by major artists. And Ricardo De La Rosa saw a business niche and would fly, it would go to Europe and buy Hamburg Steinway Ds right. and bring them back to the US and obliterate the serial numbers. And he'd rent them and he'd rent them in New York City to major, major artists. Now, now and then, it was, and then it, LA and then other cities. Yeah. And in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was a brilliant business model because Steinway really couldn't complain that much. They're still playing a Steinway. Well, no, it's an American and German and things, but it was still a Steinway. And he had a really good business because the quality of the of the average concert grand uh, owned by Steinway at that time was so was so bad. And that was what gave us a uh, Yamaha an opportunity. And it gave uh, Brisbane an opportunity. You know, they, exactly. they outlived their their monopoly status and things would have been different, honestly, if, uh, if they had had a higher quality period. Now, I have to say the pianos I've seen lately have been really nice, really nice coming. Much better. Yeah. Uh, but but um, it's like night and day. Fascinating. Keep going or? Well, well do we have questions from the- uh, we, I don't know if we have a ton here. Let's see what we got here. Beloved, beloved community. Listen, uh, the, the one about Compare and contrast Schimmel's and other German pianos. Do you mind if I take that? Oh, absolutely not, please. So, so here's the thing that I realized. The, the, the momentous occasion in my professional life was when I saw an Imperial Brisenhofer for the first time. And it was at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And they had a nice piano mix. I had done my very early, I want to give a shout out to Joel Jones in Madison, Wisconsin, a wonderful, wonderful guy and, and my first teacher and uh, 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 somebody really responsible for big parts of my career. Um, they had good piano facilities, they had Hamburg and American Steinways, but there was something about this Imperial, there was something about this Austrian thing that I just couldn't get out of my head. It had a re radical impact on me. And, and it's pure coincidence that a couple of years later, I was employed by the company and in Vienna watching them build this stuff. Um, but I have always been a European piano guy. I mean, after that experience with Hamburg Steinways and with, uh, with Brisenhofer, you know, you kind of go, again, this is the 80s. You go and look at a D from that period and it's like, man, that's really, I had, really, I have to get a file to align this hammer. I have to get a file out. How does that? How does that work? I don't quite. I don't know. It was it was frustrating for me. But I have since been to most of the European uh, manufacturers. Uh, uh, 
to, uh, for tours. And here's my, if there's a takeaway, a technical takeaway for this, it's like respect the maker because there are many, many different uh, sounds, uh, tone, tonal targets by these manufacturers. There is not much to uh, Steinway's chagrin and there's not one sound for everybody for everything. There are, and it especially comes through when you start exploring these European uh, manufacturers and you realize that to the North German sound, there's a South German sound, there's a very particular Vienna sound, there's an East German sound and you, there are still representatives of this style. Schimmel, for example, is a, is a North German sound as is Hamburg Steinway. So I would, I would put uh, uh, Schimmel and Grotrian and uh, Hamburg Steinway, they're, they're a little bit in the, to me in the same families, very different from American style very different from, um, radically different from uh, uh, Grisendorfer and also different from Steingraber. You know, Steingraber is from a different uh, uh, part. So these guys don't all have the same, uh, agree on the same tonal standard. And that's why there are technical differences in these, in these pianos. And you gotta realize there's, you know, the, the, there's really primarily only two ways to build a rim and, and I, I heard this from Udo Steingraber. where he said there's the, the beach or the swimming pool. And kind of go, okay, well, the beach, where's my video here? Uh, the beach, the waves crash up and splash and break into fragments and uh, tiny drops and they're kind of hammering on this hard wall. We're on a beach, it's a very gentle slope and the waves don't really crash, they, they gently ebb and flow. And the, the beach, uh, piano rim is the, the standard multi-rim laminate bent rim that Steinway, but basically everybody uses. And, and it's usually used in conjunction with a duplex scale because you're looking for these kind of high harmonics. You're looking for this kind of whoosh sound over the uh, top of everything. And that really hard, stiff rim is going to help uh, accentuate that. With other pianos like Gersendorfer, which have uh, zero tension rims, they don't want any tension in the rim. That's why they build them with these, you know, spruce blocks. It's a much different sound. And much to my chagrin, I'm, I'm not sure I'm crazy about the idea of the Viennese, the, what do they call it, the VC, the Vienna concert pianos. Because the primary change in these Gersendorfers is that they add a duplex oh, yeah. and yeah. And to me, that's uh, combining apples and hamsters. But uh, they didn't ask me my... Uh, opinion on that. So, and then you have somebody like Bluner that does kind of both. They have laminated sections, but they're only sections. They, then they glue them together in blocks. Or you have uh, uh, somebody like um, August Furster, who, who does uh, sort of the same thing. They sort of do the Bersendorfer curves on a solid plank with a, with a bent laminated rim. So there's lots of different ways of of doing it. The reason why most people have bent laminated rims is it's cheaper. It's easier and cheaper and more reliable to build a rim that way. And then the quality really depends on what you make that those laminations uh, out of. But but that's why, you know, it's not that it's superior. It's just that, you know, for a, for consumer level pianos, it's a much cheaper, more reliable way of, of making it. So, so that's a long answer um, regarding Schimmel. But, I, you know, it's like, this is what Dave and I were talking about earlier. If you want to be a good technician, you gotta have you gotta have a tonal 
sense. You've got to have a tonal memory and you have to go seek out these pianos and listen to them and try to catalog in your mind what the differences in, in tone are. Because what you don't want to do is make, try to make one piano sound like another. You don't, you don't want to, you, you want to enhance the character in that particular piano. You can't make a Brissendorfer sound like a Steinway. It never, ever, ever will. And, and vice versa and much more subtle uh, uh, connections in there. So respect the maker and, and be aware and conscious of the fact that that maker has a particular sound that they're, that they're trying to build out. And, and usually I find if you return everything to specs, if you do really careful work, you return everything to specs, you, the hammers are really nice and clean and they're really carefully fit to the string. The piano's innate sound is going to come out. Uh, you know, you don't have to, you don't usually have to do a lot of tweaking. Just get it right and you'll hear what the innate sound of it. Oh, that comment that you made about, um, you know, listening to different pianos and getting a sense of their sound. Uh, I'll use it as a great opportunity to just call out that uh, our Wednesday event, uh, what we're doing is we're reviewing uh, one of our private lectures uh, with Boaz Kirschenbaum on voicing. And as I said, he'll be the guest next week, but also um, I looked back at what the content we're going to cover in the sort of third section minutes 60 to 90 and he talks just about that kind of thing you know as a voicer you've got to listen to different pianos you've got to figure out you know what you like you've got to understand what other people like and how it might be different um, recordings we've also gotten that information from from great folks like Sally Phillips you know the power of listening to pianos and understanding their sound much better and Humbly, I have to say, that's something I, I need to work on a lot more, but I appreciate that, um, that info. I, I have to say something, too. You know, that's it's part of what I harp on when I teach. It's like, are you paying attention with full attention, not trying to listen to your critiquing comment and paying attention, but letting the critiquing comments and the uh, oh, that's this and blah, woof and comparison and contrasting. Just let all that go and listen to the sound of the piano. Let it fill you. Enter its world. That's the way to become uh, a, a technician in the, in, the, in the high end, to be able to Make a piano sing to maximize the efficiency of a piano is to listen with your whole being, is to pay attention when you're doing things with your whole being. Understand that it, everything adds up to something incredible. And I, well, that, that, that's what I've seen is so good about you, Eric, and about high-end tech, technicians in general, that you're just, you understand the cumulative effect of all these little things. Well, think about, think about what we ask a piano to do. You know, it's like, first of all, it's, it's the backbone instrument of what we know of as Western music. I mean, yes, okay, there are orchestras of other instruments, but uh, I mean, the, the fundamental canon of Western music is played on a piano. And we're asking people to translate these dots on paper into an emotionally uh, moving event. And yeah. how, how do they do that from this collection of mechanical weird well, percussion instrument? Yeah. yeah. Well, they do it all the time. And, and that should 
to me, I think you got to have a pile of respect for that and yeah. see yourself as a servant in that process between the composer and the audience um, and, and not as somebody who's the authority and, uh, you know, I don't know. That's, that's my natural inclination. And the data that I think along those, those. Um, so we were talking earlier, I was saying, I would love you to, it's like we have a, we have a high-end artisanal piano technician captured. So in, in, your, in your prison of love, uh, can you describe to us, you know, like you, I, I said, okay, so you can tune the piano and then have an hour or a little bit more maybe, but let's say an hour and it's got some dings. And I suggested some dings and you said, oh, let me talk about a piano that I saw yesterday. So you want to talk about that piano and go through how you did the diagnosis and then how you're going to sequence the things that you do sure. to get the best bang for the buck. Sure. Uh, quick, this is a relative. Go ahead. Questions and comments from the chat because we got, we got a few then. But after okay. Awesome. Then, then, then we can, then we can do those. Ethan. You want to do that first or, or no, what do you want to dive in with what you, where you were headed, but we'll go yeah. ahead. Okay. Um, um, the, the, the thing, the welcome skill that I developed over, particularly during my years with Brisbane is moving around and seeing pianos all the time and always kind of being under time pressure is first, one of the advantages of working with a factory is you get to be fast. You know, you're not, it's real easy to sort of like delicately consider each and every, and you know, when you've got any kind of factory experience, it's like bang through it, man. You know, you got to, you just got to put your head through, head down and, and bang through it. So I, I learned to bang through things at a high level. And I also learned to do, you know, diagnose pretty quickly. And, right. you know, the, the, most of the problems, there's usually either a problem with dip, too little or too much. There's a problem with the hammer line. Usually too, it's too deep uh, and, and no aftertouch. Um, there's a problem with the surface of the hammers that they're not square or or shaped or too grooved or something like that. And then often there's a problem with the damper upstop rail. If the damper upstop rail is set too low, you have this choked tone that you know. Is, and lots of people, oh well, it's always sounded like that, you know. Well, you raise the damper upstop rail and give that damper a little bit of room, and all of a sudden this piano explodes to life. It's yeah, like yeah, saying, thank you, you thank you. That's right. <laughs> so always, always check the damper upstop rail. And I don't want to, later on, we can go into that if there are uh, questions. So you got to quickly, you know, you got to be able to take up some dip really quick and, and carry punchings with you. And, you know, if push comes to shove, okay, maybe you don't do the low octave and the high octave, but, you know, but you have to realize, okay, is this the best thing? Raising a hammer line a little bit often makes a world of difference. And if you use, I've converted to paddles, sanding paddles, I, I could get one, but you know, just a piece of mason I cut out with different grits of uh, sandpaper on it. And always a, a block, you always have to have the shanks or the tails on a, on a block. But I found, man, you can make out, in David's words, a radical improvement in the piano by going over them with this, this uh, sanding paddle. The paddle will help keep things square, so you'll have less fitting to do. 
And you don't have to take out all the grooves, but if you just shorten the grooves a little Shorten the grooves. And, exactly. and you take down the depth of the, of the groove, right. it'll make a world of difference. And, and this is back to the tonal thing. It's like, when you first kind of do these things, you go, well, it sounds the same to me. Well, keep doing it and keep listening because it will be different. It doesn't jump out right away. This is part of the skill that you're developing is this memory and this ability to discern tones. But if you learn to tune, then you know how to do it. You know what I mean? It's like your ears are working. So it's just another level of, of discriminate, very discriminative uh, uh, listening. So you can make, and, and a good tuning, you know, a really good tuning uh, makes a makes a big difference. So this this piano, it's a CFX. It's a Distributor CX, CFX. It was just delivered. It's a couple of years old. It had been at a school. Um, it was just delivered to a uh, uh, a serious pianist, uh, a professional pianist here in here in town. And it was supposedly prepped uh, before, but it really wasn't. And you know, you look at those things, those those hot buttons. I checked the dip. Well, the dip's really deep. The hammerline wasn't bad, but the the, the drop and the let off was completely uneven and the spring tension was completely uh, uh, uneven and the hammers were, were grooved. So it's like, you know, it's just the normal kind of sets of things. Um, but don't tell me it was prepped, folks. You know, don't, don't, listen, we, got, we have to have standards, right? And if you say, you know, I didn't really have time. It, it came from a school. It's not in bad shape. It's probably okay for a home. That's the real world, okay? Don't do that and then tell me, oh yeah, we had our best guy prep it. It's like, no, either you, if you did, then he needs a lot more work. Yeah, or, he's, he's yeah. He, or you he didn't. Maybe your best guy, but he's not the best guy. So, so those, you know, be able to take up dip. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be less and it has to be even. This is the thing, it has to be even. Learn to take up dip quickly. Learn to take down dip. Uh, quickly. I've got a pair of tweezers that, man, if I lost those tweezers, I wouldn't be able to do dip again. Um, set quick hammerline. Get the hammerline off, off the rails. That makes a huge difference. And practice with these paddles doing a quick uh, shaping of the of the strings. And you will, and check the, the upstop rail, and you will oftentimes make radical improvements in the, uh, in the condition of the piano. It won't be concert prepped. Uh, also, make sure you have spring tension, some spring tension. The action doesn't work without spring tension. You'll, you'll, nothing else will work right without spring tension. So you have to have some spring tension for things to just basically. And, and would you say that spring tension influences everything, all other regulation? Uh, well, the reality is it all influences, it all influences the tone. But yes, uh, you can't do anything else without, without spring tension. But this is, you know, back to my point. Uh, listen, folks, taking up dip is going to change the tone, and learn change. to yeah. learn to hear that. Raising the hand on it, a little bit of aftertouch is going to change the tone. Learn to hear that. It, 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 all these things together have to end up in a in an improvement. So this is where you know you can set things by spec, but at a certain point you got to go. Okay, I have to make these things fit together now. And, and I'm not talking fitting together in the old Steinway sense where you had to sort of figure out how to make it work. And those, you know, that's, that's the reality of the way things were in the, in, in the eighties. No, I'm talking about at a much more subtle uh, level now, this idea of getting a piano to sing, you know, it's really, it's not just voicing it's not just tuning. It's really, it ain't gonna sing well unless 
everything's in. And that's, that's right. And regulation is voicing, straightening and burning shanks and, you know, burning in hammers is regulation. Everything, everything is voicing. Everything is voicing. Everything changes the tone. Yeah. And the more you can maximize the tone, both the fundamental and the, the sustain of it, you know, you're making the piano sing. Right. Maximizing the efficiency. And that's, Can we cut into some uh, questions and comments? Sure. Absolutely. Oh, what a, this is a great, we're just like a rapid fire episode. Everything bam, is, bam, we have some time to, for questions and stuff. Um, not, not to delve too deep into compliments, but um, uh, Eric, uh, or sorry, uh, James Kessler sent a message. He said uh, that you personally got him started in the industry eight years ago when he joined your piano. So this is a very special event for him. So welcome uh, to James. Hey, Thank James. Um, Kevin Clem, uh, maybe briefly, what was it like tuning for Oscar Peterson, Chick Corea? Any, uh, <laughs> anything to share there? And can you? Uh, yeah, it was okay. You know, um, um, well, it wasn't anything special. You know, here, listen. Here's the thing: I tuned for Oscar, so that means I heard Joe Pass, and that means I heard Niels Henning Orsted Pedersen, yeah. and you know, guess who else I heard on a number of occasions? Ella Fitzgerald, because she and Oscar were really good friends and played a lot together, and so you know, it was like, it was. Uh, it was an embarrassment of riches. I mean, I heard pianists. Um, uh, 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 oh my God! I mean, there were there were classical pianists, Sergio Fiorentino and Dubravka uh, uh, Tomsic, and, and some of these names that that aren't really known that are just, uh, you know, the the impact is is burned into you. Um, so it was great. I mean, but listen, I'm still a piano technician, so you 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 tune the piano and you go out in the hall and you're sitting there and you're cringing because you're just sure the first note he touches is going to be out of tune it doesn't matter who it is you're sitting there going and then you know it takes a couple of minutes before you kind of go well that's not so bad you know oh okay but it's it, it's a stressful it's a, a stressful thing thanks for that I'll, I'll move on but that's that's great to hear that's fascinating um Next, uh, we have, let's see here, Judy, how do you tune the extra notes in a Bosendorfer? Ah, uh, um, great question. Yeah, 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 I'm sure it comes up all the time for everybody. Um, <laughs> that, listen, I'm, I play things very safe, all right? And, and there's lots of different coincidental harmonics you can listen to, um, but I, I go, I want it to sound reasonable and I want it to sound, I want it to sound chromatically correct. And so I do basically loud octaves uh, uh, down into that low bass and just, I take it low and then I bring it up to just the point where I'm thinking, that's okay. What happens a lot of times, people start listening to harmonics and that's a very, very, very messy harmonic area down there. And they start listening to the wrong ones and they go, well, it's not quite, it's not quite, it's not quite, bang. And you're, you're dead because those are expensive strings and they're really hard to splice. I don't care what your splicing skills are. 
Um, so always be conservative, you know, uh, don't, don't try to get them correct. They're not, they're not adding pure harmonic tone. They're adding kind of this wash and then it's the additional soundboard space. It's uh, the, you know, down. if you can make them sound good chromatically, if it sounds like it's a chromatic process all the way going down in the bass, uh, you're fine. If you play them as octaves and they, it, it, when they're out of tune, they'll have a really noticeable wow, 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 kind of like a, almost like a helicopter. And if you can get rid of that, then you're fine. Don't break them. Good. That's good. Um, next one's a compare and co contrast question. I don't think you covered this. Uh, regarding Siler, uh, the same question as before, compare and contrast Siler with other German pianos and, and in the standard. Well, uh, you know, again, they all have, they all have their, their characteristics. And you know, German piano building. There's a there's a certain standard in German piano building, and, and um, all these all these companies meet this standard. So they're all they're all well designed, well built um, uh, pianos. Uh, you know, there's a there's a particular. I would kind of put Zeiler in the in the North German uh, kind of tonal characteristic. Um, but, you know, I worked with Feurich for a, a, a while and, you know, it's really interesting if you see an old Feurich piano, um, they were originally from Leipzig and there's a particular East German sound. Leipzig is Blutner territory and uh, a little bit further east is where you get August Furster and, and things and Blutner is the strangest to me. I mean, beautiful, but very unique take on, on piano tone. Um, so Zeiler to me is kind of in the, in the North German uh, kind of uh, tonal characteristic, but if you see some of these old Feuerich, uh pianos, they they migrated west after the war to around Frankfurt, um, and they were building. You know, p German piano building for a long time was not fussy. It was really it was very high level. It was beautiful craftsmanship, and they were workaday utility pianos. And when you come across some of these older ones, it, you know, it, it, it they're now everything's gotten fussy and expensive and you know, gold-plated uh, Fazioli hardware and this kind of stuff, but but there was a different, the the German piano tradition stands for something, and Seiler is certainly a member of that club. Great. Can I move on? Any other interjections? Just, there's so many tier one or very close to it German pianos that are just amazing. I work on Steingraber's, I work on Grotrian's, and both of those pianos, the new that that, well, for Steinway for a long, or for Steingraber for a long time, but for Grotrian, the, the new iteration of these Grotrian pianos are just stunningly beautiful, in my opinion. You know, Steingraber pianos are, they're just marvels of the world. And I'll tell you, the other one is is um, Zauder, man. Zauder, the Zauder two twenty five is one of the greatest pianos. It God, made. what a what a, what a piano, you know, it's like, I, I don't know, it's, it's exciting. It's, it's exciting. Um, I see a couple of these, I want to, there's a question about uh, hammers line and grooves and things. And this is another area where David and I agree. Um, it's like, um, grooves on a hammer are not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and this is one of the other, if you want to be good, you have to understand it's not just you thinking, oh, I like this tone. It's like, okay, what do professional pianists like? And if you come to a piano, you know, most of the pianos you come to, right, have three grooves. And it means nobody's ever touched the shift pedal. 
maybe there'll be four grooves which show they kind of treat it binary, you know, it's either on or off. But if you come to a piano that's clearly been played, but there are no grooves, it's kind of uniformly flat across the top. Let me tell you, you've come to a, a very serious pianist because they're utilizing the shift pedal, not as a soft pedal, but as a color pedal. And there you watch them play, their left foot is gonna be on that pedal all the time. And they're always making little micro uh, adjustments. And, and this, think of the, if you wanna work with high-end pianists, think of it as a color pedal, not a soft pedal or a shift pedal. And um, there's a, I've accepted it um, that, that with grooves, you give the player additional potential surfaces to use for tone production with the combined with the use of the shift pedal. Now, okay. you know, first do no harm. So, you know, they can't be too deep, um, but it's not necessarily a good thing to, to file all the grooves off. Even, even when I have time, I'm not under pressure or something. I'm gonna leave just the faint whisper, if I can, of, uh, of, of grooves, because it's, a, it's, a, it's an important tone production area for some people, not that many, but, but some of them. It is actually, and if you if you voice the grooves right, they're very easy to control. And many players plays play off the grooves, play off the grooves, and I really appreciate the grooves being there, but they oh. can't be longer than two or three millimeters. I don't think, and it can't be deeper than like a half a millimeter. Shortening the grooves makes a huge difference. Huge difference, huge. huge. You know, the other thing I want to mention is a jack jack position. Um, you know, this is one area where David and I differ. I think, David, don't you set jack position by taste? Isn't it? Isn't it? Oh no, yeah, by sound. Yeah. That's that's what. I licked that. I licked uh, the spoon felt and. Uh, I, yeah. I don't do it that way, but I found it. I, no, I, I do it. I, I do it. I do it by 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 sound by that. Yeah. That sound. I like to eliminate that. And sometimes if the jack is a teeny bit like an eighth of a turn forward, that's that's okay with me. I don't I don't perceive it affecting anything. I, I like a gauge for jack and I and I now use that knuckle jack or knuck jack oh. or that little device. And yeah. I'll tell you, you'll be amazed at how often you'll find pianos where the jacks are way too far back. Oh, well, it's a little bit more of a time consuming process. So you've got to be careful taking that on in a, in a, under time pressure. That's but, right. And they're not only way far back, but they're making that noise that I hate. Right, right. And just setting jacks in a, in a good position makes a world of difference in the touch. But you have to be careful. You can't do it quick because it can't cheat, right? You have to go back cheat. over and over and over it. That's right. And make sure that it doesn't. Uh, doesn't doesn't cheat, but that's a, even on relatively new pianos. I've seen jacks way back, and it just it makes such a difference to uh, the moving forward. Okay. The next question here. Uh, great info. Where? Oh, Joe's on. A, a shout out to my buddy Joe, uh, Joe Malecki. Awesome. Anyway, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Next question. Um, we're at less than ten minutes out, um, but the we've got crammed a lot into the first fifty minutes, so. We should be good here. Um, next question, next comment here, uh, Rick Overton, uh, previous guest. As a dealer for Steingraber and Grotrian in Estonia, he finds there is a specific sound difference and touch difference in each one. They really have their own personality. Um, 
Mark Campbell says, do we use different techniques to match the maker's voice in the piano or do we use the same Great question and let the maker's Great. choices make the difference? Uh, repeat that one more time. Basically, um, do, you, do you sort of treat a piano as its make and model or do you treat all pianos very similarly and let the make and model's own unique nuances come out from the way that you're sort of universally treating them all? Good question. Oh, that is, that is a that is a good question. I got to think about that. I mean, I, you know, I hate that I hate to be squirrely about it, but it, it, it's honestly a little bit of both. You know, some pianos I know really well. The Grizzly Over Two Twenty Five, I know really well, and and so I know the steps and processes and and things that will pretty much make that thing sound pretty good. Other other pianos I'm I'm not so familiar familiar with, and I may not have the specific uh, uh, specs with me. And so I try to put things generically in, in place and see what comes out. Uh, you know, again, if it, if it, you don't always get time to do this, right? And so sometimes you have to make short-term quick decisions like dip and keep, uh, aftertouch and, and this kind of stuff. Um, but if you've, if you've got time, the pianos speak to you. <laughs> I hate to sound too, but they'll They'll tell you if you're if you're listening okay, that you clean up all the other junk, and this includes you know easing keys and polishing balance rail pins and you know it's all related, folks. It's all related. And, and if you want this piano, if you want this Xyler, or if you, uh, you know seven footer, if you want this uh, Zouder two twenty four or two twenty seven or something, um, if you want it to sound like God intended it. Um, you got to go through the steps and, yeah. and then it's, and then I find then it's usually just evening stuff off and, and there might be a balance problem. And, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily, it, it won't necessarily be trivial. You may have to juice and, you know, bring some stuff up or, you know, to balance it out, but the piano will, you give it room and, and prove that you're a listener. <laughs> prove that you um, can listen. The piano will tell you. Yeah. I totally agree. Before we wrap this up, can you talk about that final step of evening out the attack mode with a chopstick voicing tool? Yeah, but Carl Lieberman standing there with his arms folded, and I'm really intimidated. And so <laughs> I don't know. I can't. Um, uh, he, he listened up, so you're good to go, pal. You know, I hardly ever use a chopstick. So don't, don't, don't take it too seriously. To be honest, I mean, well, in an emergency, what, but but whatever uh, your whatever your whatever the thing is that whatever the protocol or tool you you use to get the attack of every note to sound the same. The the hammer has to be fit to the string with excruciating pain and frustration. You know, this is the thing. If you want to be good, folks, there's no secret. There's not many secrets. And you have to do the work. And that means you have to go over things a couple times. You can't just go over it once. You have to go over things a couple times to make sure they're right and consistent and even. And um, uh, that's particularly true with ha fitting the hammer to the strings, man. You've got to make yourself crazy just getting it to, to all mute at the same time. And if you do anything do you, less than that, you're going to fail. Do you use a hook or do you I use, use a hook? I use a hook in my in my fingernail. 
um, and a pencil and I and a very sharp pencil. I learned this in Vienna, a very sharp pencil. And I put a tiny pencil mark on the top of the hammer under the strings that mute. And so I can go through a whole set and then I pull the action out in my lap and I see these old pencil marks. And all I have to do is file away the pencil right, marks. Pencil mark. wow. Yeah. And then it wow. may, not, it may not be enough, but, yeah. but you know, you, you do that a couple of times and you'll, you'll be in, in pretty good shape. Um, um, and then uh, that's, that's the biggest one. The other one, you know, the other two things that I do on a regular basis is I have a, a tool with uh, two rows of, it came from Jim Coleman, I think, two rows of, of eight needles, maybe. Very, very, very short. Uh, like, like sugar coating, only multiple needles, kind of two rows. And I find that if early in the process, of the, in the prep process, if I go through and with this very short needle uh, tool, go right across the strike point, I have to evaluate it first, obviously, but if I go right across the strike point, um, uh, then by the time I'm done tuning, you know, it'll have an immediate impact. But it, it, a lot of times it just breaks up the, the tenseness in that top layer of fiber so that it gives you a sweet sound, you know, at, at mezzo forte and a sweet sound. Especially at, yeah, especially at low volume. As, right, as well. right. And then, and the power is still there because you haven't, you haven't, um, uh, Destroy the string cut. And then I use a, there's a sandpaper that I use that, you know, it, it's vinyl and it doesn't any, I, they, I'm told they use it for polishing uh, jet engine canopies. It, it has no grit that I can feel. Um, and I go over the hammers with that. And I find that has a, it has very little impact, but it ha there's something that gives a nice little even warmth to the, to the top. You never, you never quit, quit learning about voice. No, no, that's what's so awesome about this business. Those, that, those, those are two fabulous techniques. And please expect some questions on what kind of, you know, gritless sandpaper. And, the, and, the reason I do that voicing first is by the time I'm done tuning a couple times and all the other stuff, it's been settled in and packed in and, and that kind of stuff. And then I, then I can voice, then I can really even things out. But wow. you do it early in the process and it, it has a, can have a big impact. Okay. Wow. This has been jam-packed. Pretty awesome. Really? Um, we're about uh, a minute and a half out from when we log off here. Um, I put some links in the chat. I'm, Pooja, can you share our slide that, that calls out the people in the behind the scenes? Uh, we put the, the links in the chat here. Um, feedback forms, the first one I added there. Um, the Wednesday voicing event, if you want to join us and review Boaz's lecture on voicing, where he explicitly talks about some of the things we mentioned here today, listening to different piano sounds, um, the link's there. And also, if you want to pre-register for next week's radio hour for free, um, that link is there. And then I'll just go over, um, uh, let's get rid of the, you had it before. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Yay, team. Yeah, Thank you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Yeah, we got Tal, Ian, Pat, Daniel, Sarah, and uh, and actually even more uh, folks uh, joining our team, helping us out behind the scenes. So, thank you very much to them. We really uh, appreciate what they're up to. And um, you can uh, take that slide down, and we'll we'll wrap it up here. Um, I just mention one thing uh, uh, before we close, because there's one question that I wanted to uh, address. Oh yeah, sure. Let's go for it. 
uh, Joe, uh, my buddy Joe down in Charleston uh, asked about uh, tapping bridge pins and sending strings and this kind of stuff. I don't do that as a as a wholesale activity. There's some people that the first thing I do is go through and tap all the bridges and do this and do that. And I, I don't do that. Um, one, it doesn't, don't tap bridge uh, strings on bridges if they don't need it. Um, and a lot of times it, it changes things. It can change things in a very unexpected way. So I'll use all those tools if I'm looking for a buzz or looking for a problem or something, but I don't, I'm, I'm not a big fan of just sort of wholesale, always tapping bridge bins and always uh, Anyway, that's all. Oh, awesome. Good. An awesome alternative viewpoint from a lot of people. This was fun, you guys. I really, listen, I really appreciate it. Ethan, uh, David, you guys are doing great work here. It really, it, I, I really appreciate being invited, but I also really appreciate everything you've done up to this point. It's, it's important for us to get together this way and to share these ideas and to do it, you know, utilizing modern common technology. So uh, no, my hats no, off, really great no, job. No question. And a couple of your, you know, tips were just like priceless, man. So thank you so much. Well, I'll put a price Thank on. you so much for the, the whole hour just flew by. And so thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Well, I will, uh, I'll log us off. Loyal hordes. It's beautiful to see you all. Thank you so much. Couldn't do this without all you guys that Definitely. attend all the time. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Have a beautiful weekend. Get off the grid. Treat yourself like the king and queen you are. Okay? Thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time. Remember that you can catch us live online every Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. That's right. Go to pianotechradio.com to register so you can interact live and ask questions of our guests. See you next week.